All right, welcome to another podcast episode of White Collar Crimes. I am Ryan Horn, your host. So glad to have you aboard as always. A little alliteration for this title of the episode tonight or today, depending on when you hear it. And this was, and if this is an episode to discuss Martin Frankel of the Frankel Fraud Fund, as I've titled it. Now, you can also catch a little bit about his case on American Greed. But Mr. Frankel was born in 1954 to a Jewish family and attended the University of Toledo, but did not graduate. Now, a lot of this was supposedly from what he said later was from crippling anxiety, very awkward social skills. And we've talked about it on here a lot. A lot of business people don't finish college because business is one of those realms, I think, where you can certainly succeed without college. It seems there's several of them that... uh, that do well without it. In fact, uh, Ray Kroc, who was the big CEO of McDonald's that made McDonald's the fast food giant it is, he he was rumored that he would not hire MBAs because he felt they were too structured and lacked creativity and things of that sort. And we've mentioned others on here, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, different business giants that uh, did not finish college. So it's not entirely unusual, but nonetheless, Mr. Frankel did not. But he decided to enter the financial industry. Now, he would later admit to actually using astrology to make his financial decisions. And I can't remember who it was or where it was, but I remember seeing several years ago there was a financial group that got busted when they found out that they were just literally uh, posting things on the dartboard and throwing darts to decide where they were going to put people's money and make the big investment for. So it's kind of scary, you know, when you do invest that you think something like this could be happening with your money. And it is a gamble anytime you do invest, whether it's a reputable company or not, you can never really find out a lot of times until after the fact, unfortunately, like in this case. But, uh, Sometimes some of them have some very questionable practices how they come about deciding how to invest your money. Now, he often failed to make trades in the proper deadline, so this supposedly led to his firing in 1986. But he did go down swinging. He supposedly broke up his boss's marriage and took his wife, Sonia, with him to start Winthrop Capital. So I guess that's one way to get back at the boss after firing you, just take his wife with you. So exactly what he did. And he used an alias by the name of James Spencer, which again, we've covered other cases on here, whether they'll use aliases sometimes when they're barred from the SEC, they will go in the background as a quote unquote consultant. And that's legal for them to do consulting, but we know very good and well many of them are the ones doing the day-to-day groundwork for these financial institutions. Even though they are barred from doing so, they continue to do so in that role. So he used this alias, and it was at this time he set up the Frankel Fund, which, as I pointed out, would sadly, in reality, become the Frankel Fraud Fund. And then he moved to Florida and began scamming investors there. And we seem like we've covered a lot of cases lately that did happen in Florida. A lot of financial scamming and, and things of that sort happened there. Now, again, we pointed out, and there's no strange correlation here. Florida, you know, my wife and I lived there, I pointed out, for over a year. It's a very 
heavily populated area of elderly in Florida, a lot of retirees and, and folks like that. And sadly, they are targeted for these scams. We mention this pretty much every episode at the end that you need to look out for your elderly friends and family because oftentimes they are the top ones that are targeted for white collar and financial scams. So he opens up this fund, but he begins to use investor accounts for his own personal spending for himself and his family. And what does that also sound like we've covered a million times on this podcast? A classic textbook Ponzi scheme. We don't want to beat a dead horse or sound like a broken record on this podcast, but the fact is, it's very simple. It is probably, when we're talking white-collar crimes, financial crimes, things of that sort, it is one of the most popularly used methods in ill-gotten wealth among white-collar criminals. And we've covered the original podcast on or covered on the original fraudster that created the Ponzi scheme, Charles Ponzi. You can go back quite a ways. It's one of the early podcasts, but it was to kind of educate the listeners on what it really is. And if you are still a little unfamiliar with it, recommend go back and listening to that podcast because that shows where that actually got established at. And it's a method that tons of other white-collar criminals after Charles Ponzi have used and successfully ripped people off out of billions and billions and billions of dollars since then. And he would later finally just transfer all of the investment accounts to his own secret account, and he began rating accounts before the investor could cash out. Again, classic Ponzi scheme. And as we pointed out a million times, you can keep a Ponzi scheme going for a while if you have new investors coming in. But the moment they stop and people want paid, once you run out of money to pay them and you don't have new people coming into keeping it going, your your scheme collapse. And that's how the overwhelming majority of these Ponzi schemers probably get caught. But a lot of them, as we pointed out with Bernie Madoff and some other ones on here, they get away with this for an awfully long time sometimes before they are actually caught or brought down. And in the end, they destroy people's life savings, retirements, investments, anything they've had for the hope of a better future or the hope to leave something for their children and their families, it's gone. And he began rating these accounts in a classic Ponzi scheme way. Now, he told investors that the fund had collapsed due to bad investments from his partner, a man by the name of Douglas Maxwell. And he quickly turned the funds over to an attorney that they were selected, or pardon me, they were, though, quickly seized by the SEC. Once investors began reporting and getting suspicious of his activities, he was reported, and the SEC got involved. Now, he fled Florida and quickly went back to Toledo, which is odd because a lot of times if you know crime, whether it's street crime or white-collar crime, a lot of people will actually flee and go down to Florida, and I think there's a good reason for that. When we lived down in Florida, my wife and I did, you will find a very transient population in most of that area and it's very easy to blend in without standing out at all and especially at this time we're talking before social media and things like that that have certainly made privacy almost a thing of the past but back then you could go somewhere and very easily disappear but he kind of does the opposite here and goes back to his home area and he started to what a business became known as creative partners Now, the SEC, they're already on to his trail in Florida, so they find out, and eventually 
they track him all the way up in his new business up in Ohio, the Creative Partners. And their investigation, the SEC, they found out that he was also using aliases and also working with Rothschild, or using the alias of Rothschild International Investments and using this as a front to get investor money, which he was funneling into a Swiss bank account. Now, he was eventually fined and barred by the SEC in 1992, which he's lucky he wasn't criminally prosecuted at this time. Unfortunately, he wasn't, and that didn't stop him, and more people down the road lost money. Had the SEC pursued criminal charges at this point, which they most likely certainly had evidence enough to do so, a lot of people may not have suffered down the road, but we often see that, whether it's white-collar crime or street crime, people that it should be charged or not, and later down the road they commit much more harmful acts. And again, like I said just a little bit ago, he can work behind the scenes as a quote-unquote consultant or whatnot and still be actually the one carrying out the day-to-day operations of the business. And it happens all the time. And the scary thing is it's really hard to investigate and find out where the people you are putting your money with, who is actually the one pulling the strings and working the organization behind the scenes because that could be just about anybody at that point. And he did continue to use aliases, and he used an aliases or an alias by the name of David Ross to continue his little scams, and he actually began to use the Catholic Church to even front some of his scams. And he fraudulently worked with a Monsignor by the name of Emilio, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, Caligoviani, on his scam. And even more so over time, he got the Monsignor to falsely sign a statement stating that they were funded by the Vatican, which, you know, that's going to carry a lot of weight with a lot of different investors because, you know, the Catholic Church has a lot of clout, a lot of name with financial, the Catholic Church has a lot of money, and it gives automatic, you know, uh, legitimacy to an investment maybe because the Catholic Church is the world's largest Christian denomination. There are well over a billion practicing, you know, Catholic members of the Catholic Church throughout the world. So he uses this as a front and gets investors signed up. But when the investigation continued to heat up by the uh, night by May 1999 and when the feds were very much closing in on him, He fled the country to Rome and then Hamburg, Germany. And that's supposedly where the hamburger was created, for those of you a little history lesson. I remember there was a debate years ago whether it was in Hamburg, New York, or Hamburg, Germany. But supposedly, evidence says that the hamburger, the sandwich that we know it as today, was actually invented in Hamburg, Germany, wherever. Um, Certainly enjoyed my share of them throughout my life, so I'm glad it was invented somewhere, whether it was Germany or New York, but I'm glad it was invented. So he was arrested in Germany on September 4th of 1991, or I'm sorry, 1999, for, at this time, passport fraud. So he does a little bit of time in Germany for this passport fraud crime. And before he could be released, he was extradited back to the U.S. a couple years later when he served his sentence in Germany in 2001, he was extradited back to the U.S., Now, he was charged altogether with 24 counts of securities and wire fraud. Fifteen of his his associates, including the Monsignor just mentioned ago, 
pled guilty to these charges. Now, he supposedly was, uh, supposedly he did plead guilty, I mean, he did plead guilty to money laundering and racketeering among the charges that he pled guilty to. And at the sentencing, Frankel told the judge that he stole this money to support Sonia and her two children. This is his boss's wife, remember, not his, just the girlfriend and her two children. Now, you can imagine how insulting this probably was to the judge at the time to have this. Somebody try to pass this off as an actual excuse, a defense in court that you stole all this money, but you only did it to help your mistress and her two children. Because like I said a minute ago, if you remember, this was not his wife. He It was the wife of a former boss that fired him back in the, I believe the 1980s, we said early on in this his financial career. But he took his took the girlfriend with him to start up the new company, and he tried to use that as an actual defense. We've seen some pretty wild defenses over the years, whether it be in criminal court or white-collar crime cases, but this one, honestly, has got to be pretty close up there at the top. And the judge thankfully didn't buy it, and to which the judge replied, so you stole $209 million to take care of the children, which makes a good point. I don't know whatever situation... Sonia and her children were in, I doubt it was to the tune of needing $200 million to remedy the situation. It's not like he stole this money. We've seen several situations maybe where a family gets really financially desperate and to avoid starving to death or being left out in the cold or something, they may commit a theft or something like that of some food or some money or things like that. Still wrong and illegal, but you can certainly understand it more as a mitigating circumstance to a crime. $209 million. I don't know what situation Sonia and the kids were in, but I can guarantee you it did not remedy stealing $209 million to, once again, from clients that were overwhelmingly elderly in Florida here, which were the ones that were targeted the most, just like we've seen over and over in so many cases. And he also tried to play the mentally ill card, tried to play kind of a mentally ill defense and he tried to say that it wasn't going to do any good sentencing him to prison because that would not treat his supposed mental illness that he stated he had. I did not find any documentation or record of any diagnosed mental illness of him but this is the card that he tried to claim. But that didn't work either. He had a pretty good level-headed judge on this and the judge sentenced him to 16 years and 8 months in federal prison. So, a decent sentence for white-collar crime, but you're talking, in this case, like he said, $209 million. That's a lot of money, and, you know, 16 years is not a great deal, really, I guess, when you think about it, when you know people who have done probably close to that or longer for nonviolent drug offenses or things of that sort. So, you know, you got to kind of wonder, is that really the answer to things? on a case like this should they be getting more time because as we pointed out on this show if they do get any time at all oftentimes it's far less than your standard street criminal would get even though when you're talking to the tune of 209 million dollars here i'm almost certain he destroyed more lives than your average street criminal does by far and like i said earlier it's not just the money he takes from him these are oftentimes all people have to live in in their elderly years and and to enjoy the hard work they've had over the years 
They've tried to leave something, like I said, a little bit for their families, and that gets wiped out. They try to leave something for a better life for even themselves in their elderly years, and that's wiped out. Sometimes people just want to reward themselves for hard work and invest a little and make a little more money on top of that, and that gets ripped away and stolen, too, from people like this. And he lived very high and lavish and tried to flee the country, but thankfully he was caught and brought back to justice but he did uh, manage to escape it for a while and live very well with the money while he had it. Now, he was released in 2016 after serving 12 years of the 16-year sentence. So he's been out now. We're looking at about seven years now that he's been out. So he's one of these cases we can talk about that it certainly is possible that he could reoffend again. If he's born in 1954... That makes him pushing 70, I believe, right now, 69, 70, or 69, closing in on 70. So he's still got time. He could still certainly get involved in some scams and things like that. I have not seen any reported criminal charges or investigations or anything he's under since his release, but I would almost be certain to ensure that if he's out there, he's probably plotting or planning one somewhere. And again, he could be working behind the scenes as a quote-unquote consultant, at somewhere you or I might be investing in without us even knowing it. That's the scary thing about the investment world, and that's something he certainly still could be doing. Hopefully no reputable financial institution would trust him even to work as a consultant, but you just don't know. It does happen all the time, and as we've seen too, his propensity to use aliases and work behind the scenes as someone other than himself who knows how he could be operating if he is now hopefully he learned his lesson from doing his time and doesn't victimize anyone anymore but sadly we know a lot of times that is just the case but it did say actually i would stand corrected there have been supposed times he was briefly returned to prison for parole violations i should say these were probably technical in nature i don't know if they were criminal violation because that's the only two ways you can have your parole violated is for a new charge or for what's called a technical violation it's the same with probation where I work that can be not doing drug treatment failing drug tests not maintaining employment changing your address without notifying your PO things like that so I do stand corrected he has been sent back to prison twice for parole violations but I to my knowledge not for any new financial schemes that he's cooked up so hopefully he has at least learned his lesson on that but we have to watch out because you just don't know he still may be planning to victimize other folks and that's something we always talk about at the end and as we do come to an end at this podcast i do want to encourage you to continue to do that watch out for your elderly friends and family and if you're listening from florida i would say especially you folks down there because as we've seen a lot on this podcast lately a lot of folks from florida seem to get the elderly get targeted and victimized for these scams so if you have elderly friends and family in florida be sure and watch out for them the most but watch out for yourself and all of your friends and family and we thank you as always for tuning in we'll be back again next week And I did mention coming up an episode about white-collar crime and greed being one of the deadly sins. My guest guest that's going to be on that, it's been bumped up a little bit, so you will hear this podcast in April. Uh, Some schedules have kind of put that off for a little bit, so that will be coming up. And we do hope you'll tune in to us each week and hope you'll like our Facebook page, 
share the posts that we have, follow us for updates on things. Uh, if you have any voiceover work you need to do, check out my website, ryan-horn.com. I do audiobooks. Got one getting ready to come out soon from Cherry Hills Publishing. More on that soon. And uh, as always, we'd like to point out, too, if you want to be a guest on this show or you have an idea for a show, email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com because we've had guests with both. We've had listeners that have been guests on this podcast and we have had some that have given me ideas for some of the podcasts and shows that we've done and we appreciate both and we appreciate you tuning in and following us and hopefully you'll be able to continue to tune in and support us because we are growing and we appreciate that and we always like to give a little plug to support your local pet shelter and adopt your new best friend as my wife says adopt don't shop it's important to do that because put the puppy mills out of business and help the folks that are trying to do the animals right by the right way so we appreciate you tuning in god bless we will see you next week take care everybody